Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. This is the first show we've had since the Army-Navy game last Saturday. For those who were asleep or living under a rock since then, Navy broke the losing streak by winning 31-7. to It was a fantastic day up there. The weather uh, started off kind of bad, but it, it by the time it was over uh, or during the last three quarters, it was fantastic. So just really, really a fun day up there. So congratulations to Coach Niamatololo and Malcolm Perry. As most listeners know, we had them on the show three episodes ago. Yep. Um, and uh, now they're prepping for... Liberty Bowl. The Liberty Bowl. I was going to say the Memphis Bowl, but the New, Liberty Bowl. New Year's Eve at 345. Yes. So uh, we look forward to that. But uh, in any case, fantastic season. Always good to bring the Commander-in-Chief's trophy back home. And so it's now back home. And uh, I think our latest ranking is 23, I believe, in the uh, AP poll. That was before the game. I haven't seen those. So we'll be ranked when it's all said and done, yeah. which is, uh, again, Rank, by ranked ahead measure. of USC. Ranked ahead of USC. Look there at that. There you go. Excellent. All right. So we're lucky to have our guests in the studio with us today. It's always fun when the guests are actually here in, uh, I guess we would call this Studio S, right? That's right. So uh, for, that's for Stavridis. This was his office when he was the chairman. Um, he's now the chairman emeritus. But to me, this goes way back to when it was Fred Rainbow's office back in the day. Um, but in any case, both of our guests are here. They are the authors of a new Naval Institute press book called Middle East 101, a beginner's guide for deployers, travelers, and concerned citizens. With us, Yusef Abul-Inayn and Joseph Stanek. Yusuf is a U.S. Navy commander in the Medical Service Corps. Since 9-11, he's been immersed in and has advised on counterterrorism and Middle East affairs at the highest levels of DOD and the intelligence community. Joe is a retired Navy officer, the author of Swift and Effective Retribution, the U.S. Sixth Fleet in Confrontation with Gaddafi in El Dorado Canyon, Reagan's Undeclared War with Gaddafi. He's a 78 grad of the Academy. Welcome home, Joe. And he's a longtime teacher of history at the secondary and collegiate level. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. It's a delight. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start with a general 30,000-foot premise. Since Desert Storm 1, Anybody who was on active duty, regardless, and I'm talking about the naval services, regardless of warfare, especially rank, rate, has some first-person literacy, in their minds at least, of the Middle East. So maybe it was a port call at Haifa. Mm -hmm. You went through the ditch. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe uh, you had some of that good... Uh, container box Liberty in Jeddah. Um, maybe you've been to Dubai. Maybe you were an LNO at Riyadh. You pulled Liberty maybe in Manama. You've been in the Persian Gulf proper, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you were an IA in Iraq or Afghanistan. But for all of that experience, I think we would all agree there's a fundamental misunderstanding of this region. So Yusuf, where has American service members gotten it wrong? Well, uh, thank you, Ward, for the question. It's a deep question. And, and in my opinion, I think the, the biggest issue is, frankly, making 
uh, for instance, Islam too hard. All right, too hard. And not understanding the diversity inherent in 1.6 billion Muslims. 1.6 billion Muslims. So, for instance, one of the questions that I get incessantly is, and, it's, it, and we're approaching two decades now after 9-11, is so tell me again, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia? You see, and what I'm trying to get my fellow Americans to understand through this book that I've co-authored with Joe is, is not only are there differences between Sunni and Shias, there's differences within Sunni and Shia. There's a whole cacophony and a whole panoply. Another issue, too, is that it is impossible to understand Islam without Judaism and Christianity. Absolutely impossible. So if you come from that premise, you're going to understand the region and the AOR much, much better. The central question that I'd like your listeners to take away from, if there's just one, one central question to stick in their minds, is whose Islam? Which Islam? You ask yourself that, and you've earned yourself a ringside seat to some of the most contentious debates throughout the region's history, and even more so in the post-Arab spring ecosystem. So before we get to that key question, um, and the version of it that applies to our foreign policy currently, this book is fantastic. You guys have made it massively accessible. I, I would I would say it's maybe 20 years too late, but we will have adventures in the Middle East in perpetuity, so it's still hyper-relevant. Let's talk about the beginnings of Islam and Muhammad, because that just fascinated me to no end, uh, to, to realize um, the time frame that Muhammad lived, because um, it's not as old as I was imagining in my in my mind, right? Uh, and and so, take us take us there, Joe. The um, uh, the Middle East. If we if we go back to the year six hundred, the the Middle East was um, uh, or the the Arabian Peninsula. Is A D or B C? Uh, A D. Okay. A D. So this, really, this is less than two thousand years ago, fourteen hundred years ago, and uh, the uh, the region was dominated by the two superpowers of the time: the the Roman Byzantine Empire and the Persian Sassanid Empire, and um, uh, the Arabian Peninsula itself was very tribal. It was uh, polytheistic. Um, uh, Muhammad grew up, uh, he was born in, in the Hejaz, which is the uh, the harsh region of the West. That's where the holy cities of Mecca and Medina are located. He uh, was an orphan at a very early age. He um, he was uh, raised by, um, by a grandfather and then later an uncle, but he spent considerable time with the Bedouins, where he learned uh, the, the great uh, Arab virtues. And um, he was a very he was a very honest businessman. Uh, he became a, a very successful merchant. Married married very well, but uh, as he as he was approaching his middle life, or actually the end of his life, when he was about forty years old, uh, he was really concerned about how how um, uh, bankrupt the uh, Arab morality had become. That the society had become very corrupt. So I used to ponder this a great deal. I said, if we, if we he had contact with Jews and, and, and Christians well, uh, through his travels on caravans, and uh, also just, there were tribes living in the there were Jewish tribes living in the Hijaz. Uh, he came in. He came to realize that uh, these folks have a uh, they have a holy book. They have a they have a guidepost, and uh, we don't. So we need uh, we need that. And all of a sudden, um, he used to go off and meditate. And one night, uh, the angel Gabriel came to him and, and began. Uh, Revealing the Quran to him, and he began his uh, 
preaching career then in the, in the year 610. Yeah, Joe brings up some important points. Uh, 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 Muhammad was born in the Arabian Peninsula, which is at that time that he's talking about is you have you have Zeus cults, you have Isis cults, you have a panoply of you know polytheistic gods that the tribes follow. But you also had Arabized Jews and Christians. But it's important to understand when you when you talk about Christians of that period, as Joe said, the the, the areas were dominated by Christian Byzantium and the Sassanid Persians. Arabia was the backwater. So if you happen to be practicing some form of Christianity in, in pre-Islamic Arabia, you would probably be classified as non-canonical Christian, escaping the persecution of Byzantium because you wanted to continue following your beliefs, whether, for instance, you followed the Alexandrian monk Arya, who denied the divinity of Christ, for instance. Uh, and Mohammed being a caravaneer was steeped in those ideas, and Mecca being a center of trade was also steeped in, 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 the, in the, those exchange of ideas. But there are two powerful ideas that, that Muhammad came at the right time to actually bring together. Like Joe said about the Arab tribe, uh, Arab, I should say, uh, chivalry. Uh, Pre-Islamic Arab chivalry. In Arabic, that was called Muruwa, a whole code where you made provisions for the weak, the sick, you uh, the whole idea of hospitality towards the guest. That actually is pre-Islamic Arab code. And urbanized Arabs in Mecca and the Yathrib, the city that would become Medina, they had abandoned those values. But you have to understand, th those questions came even from Muhammad's birth in 570 AD. The second powerful idea is if you happen to be an Arab that tended towards some sort of monotheism, belief in one God. Um, you uh, have it. You, 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 you. There was a very powerful narrative swirling about even before Muhammad came on the scene, and that was if you were an Arabized narrative, uh, Arabized uh, uh, monotheist, uh, then you. One narrative was is you believed that you were descended from Abraham. And you linked yourself to Abraham through his son Ishmael. Now, if you believe that, then the question then comes, which Joe brought up, which is, okay, why hasn't God sent us a prophet to teach us monotheism in the Arabic language? You see, why? Have we displeased God? Are we not worthy? Why is it that the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, the Israelites, get prophets and we don't? Now, these ideas predate Muhammad, you know. So, but Muhammad came at a time that when he declares his prophecy in 609 AD, different people saw different things in Muhammad. Hey, this is the guy who's going to reestablish chivalry. Oh, no, this is the guy that's going to bring us, finally, a prophet for the Arabs, an Abrahamic prophet for the Arabs, you see. So uh, these are all complex ideas. It's that, always fascinating, yeah. just whether it's Christ or Muhammad, the notion. And if you think about just in, in your own community, if somebody emerges and goes, you know, Gabriel talked to me last night, and I have the truth. And, and so that just in and of itself seems fantastic that you can create a religion around a single person in a time of nihilism or immorality, mm -hmm. right? Because as you just said— the Arab world's wandering around. How come we don't have a prophet? So what's the difference between Muhammad and anybody else that claims that, that a ghost talked to them? 
that that message appealed to those Arabs that wanted that wanted their book, wanted their prophet, wanted their their uh, their their morality revived. But at the same time, there was there was a tremendous backlash that he was upsetting the social apple, apple cart, Correct. and that he faced tremendous opposition. And uh, you know, what do you mean? What do you mean we have to treat our slaves fairly? What do you mean? Uh, you know. Um, I um, have to have to be fair to my wife and, and things like that. So it really uh, really caused quite a quite a problem. And the fact um, you mean there's only one God. We 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 hold this annual uh, poetry uh, competition every year in, in Mecca at the Kaaba. And uh, if how can we how can we do that when there's only one God? Nobody's going to come and see just one God. Yeah. Right. So there's <laughs> commerce at stake, right? There's <laughs> well, there's well, planners who are like I mean, you're even, wrecking my business yeah. plan. Yeah, even exactly. even before uh, Muhammad, what had happened was Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh, had convinced various tribes in the Arabian Peninsula, including the Christians in the Jaran in the south of Arabia, to bring their totems, in this case the icon of Mary and Jesus, and store them in the Kaaba. Well, they understood that eventually you would have to come visit, you'd have to come make pilgrimage, you'd have to, uh, you know, spend money. So they had a good thing going, and Muhammad was upsetting that with his talk about uh, well, again parallels to Christ, yeah, right. The same persecution based on a status quo, based on on commerce and and, and wealth. Right. Now, the other thing about Muhammad versus Jesus is Muhammad acknowledges the existence. Of Jesus, correct, right? He's just correct. not the true yep. voice of God, so he, right? He, yeah, he's not the son of. So, in yeah. other words, if you talk to a Muslim, they'll say they'll t- say he's Jesus, son of Mary, okay, not the Jesus, ma- son of Mary God. God, okay, right, right, a prophet, a great, great Islamic prophet, yeah, okay, correct. So, for instance, in Islamic, actually, deep theology, if you will. Uh, technically, uh, and the Quran actually quotes this, uh, these Abrahamic prophets are supposed to be equal, like the comb, like a comb that you brush mm-hmm. your hair with. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be equal. So you don't, you're not supposed to elevate Muhammad, say, above Jesus, Abraham, Noah, or, you know, Isaac, these, these different Abrahamic prophets. I mean, that's theologically, but of course. You're not supposed to. Yeah, you're not but supposed you, to. If but you, you know, draw a cartoon of Jesus, yeah. people don't get killed. Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, it, it, it is, well, one of the reasons, for instance, uh, movies like uh, The Passion of the Christ, for instance, is, is not shown in the Middle East, uh, particularly in Saudi Arabia, for instance, uh, is, is depictions of, of Jesus. There is a 1975 movie of Muhammad uh, called The Message, and I do urge people to, to watch that. It was made by movie. Mustafa Akkad. Who actually died in in the Amman hotel bombings? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, a right. victim of Zarqawi. He's, he's, wow. he's in that, wow. yeah. that, that yeah. event in our book. Yeah, he's actually famous for the Halloween movies, actually. But he did make the movie The Message, and I remember when that movie. You know, initially the whole consternation of that movie because you were showing Muhammad's walking stick and his camel, and but eventually people got over it, and it's actually quite a, an, an interesting movie. And now, for instance, it, there was a, a Ramadan special. It's in Arabic, but it's excellent. And the Arabic language of it was excellent, too. I'm such a lover of language. Uh, it's called Omar. I think it came in Ramadan 2010. A whole 30-part series of this Omar, Muhammad's companion, Omar, who rose to be the second caliph, mm-hmm. Omar. So so let, let's fast forward to, I guess, basically the discovery of oil. Sure. Right? It sort of changed everything. Because before then, it's a sleepy curiosity and a mystery and... Arabian Nights and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then suddenly we get to, hey, there's oil there, as well as the creation of Israel, right? So those things, kind of that confluence of these events change the dynamic, and that's putting it very mildly, and puts us where 
in 20th, 21st century, we've had these tensions and these misunderstandings, if not allied war. So set the stage for us, Joe, of that period into, well, I guess 9-11. Okay. The, um, as we all know, the, the, the amount of oil in the Middle East is, is mind-boggling. And one of the things is that... Um, when, when did we discover that, right? When, when, I mean, obviously, industrial age had to happen for us to care about that, there was, right? right. When did we know it was there? Oh, there, was a, there, were major, um, there was a major oil discovery in uh, Iran in uh, about 1908. There was a major uh, discovery in northern Iraq about 1919, and then um, uh, I want to say in in about um, in the 1930s is when, uh, or the 1920s or 30s is when uh, Saudi oil became was was discovered and and began to be developed. And and that oil, by the way, that was discovered in Iran and Iraq became the basis of BP, British Petroleum. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, if you if you go to if you go to Bahrain, uh, they have uh, Bapco Number One. They have the the very first uh, oil well. Okay. So it's a very famous landmark. Um, the uh, and you got we can never for, never forget this is that uh, the the Nazis during World War II that was one of their goals was to capture the oil fields of the Middle East, uh, drive through the Caucasus, grab the oil in the Caucasus, and also Rommel coming across North Africa and go past the Suez Canal and into Arabia. Um, uh, oil was beginning. Remind me, did they succeed? No. They did not succeed okay. <laughs> the, uh, on, on both fronts. On both fronts, um, the United States the uh, had a, uh, an advantage over over the other great world powers, the French and the British in particular. That we never we had never been a colonial power in the Middle East. So Arabia, uh, King Saud of Saudi Arabia, the founder of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, was was very comfortable in approaching us. To uh, explore and to develop his uh, his uh, oil resources, and we, we got that going with um, um, back in the 1930s by uh, by Standard Oil of uh, of California, which later became uh, which later evolved into Aramco, the Arab American um, uh, oil company. The um, so oil was discovered and being processed in the 1930s, and all of a sudden World War II kind of put that on hold, and then um, all of a sudden after the war. Um, this relationship just continues where it picks up right where it left off. Uh, there's a few political issues along the way that kind of, that kind of that cause problems. One involving Israel and the Palestinian question. Um, President Roosevelt, before he died at Yalta, after Yalta, he meets with, with, uh, King Saud in, hmm. uh, in the, the USS Quincy. USS Quincy in the Great yeah. Bitter Lake in, um, in the Suez Canal. And he promises that uh, he will not do anything about Palestine without consulting the Arabs. And then, of course, Roosevelt dies uh, two months later, and uh, President Truman becomes one of the strongest uh, backers, backers of, of, uh, of Israel. Yeah, so that, that goes yeah. out the window. But the relationship exists, and then we d- we develop this um, this um, give and take where they supply the oil, and we'll we'll defend them. So we've we've had a, a defense agreement with them since about 1950. It's kind of an unwritten mm-hmm. pact, I think. More than something that's formal. In fact, if you see the if you see the document, it's it's just it's just typewritten yeah. on somebody's somebody's typewriter. It's, it's very. So it's very like an MOU. It's not <laughs> really yeah, a, yeah. a contract. No, indeed. Exactly. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, to, just to show you that things do get personal, uh, aboard the USS Quincy, Abdul Aziz, the founder of Saudi Arabia, I mean, by then he's ailing. He's not this spry warrior anymore, and it, it, he's taking his time getting aboard from the USS transferring from the USS Murphy to the USS Quincy, and who's waiting with their braces in absolute pain? FDR. So they sit down in that famous photograph that you see, and 
one of the first things that they have a conversation, Abdelaziz says, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting. I, I just, I'm not as, I have a lot of disabilities. I'm not as spry as I used to be. And I believe FDR opened his boat cloak and showed him his braces and said, at least you can walk. Wow. And then proceeded to give him a gift that's still on display in Riyadh, one of two wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. He loved that wheelchair. You know, so the British gave him a Rolls Royce. You give that to the kids. He loved the wheelchair. Wow. Yeah. So that was the icebreaker that began this relationship. What I don't think is, you know, widely understood, um, unless you do a lot of reading and history, is that this idea of taking Sunni Islam back to the original path goes back probably to the 13th century at least. And it certainly is manifested itself several times over over the, those seven eight hundred years in the 20th century hassan albana founds the muslim brotherhood in in the 1920 time frame 1928 mm -hmm. 1928 uh, before israel existed yeah. the zionism was well underway but the um the, the number of uh, jews living in palestine by the late 20s was still fairly small uh the united states had no position on a state of israel or anything so this there's a common misunderstanding i think that the Reaction that radical Islam in the 20th century, you know, is a reaction largely to the U.S. backing of Israel, and I don't think that's true. Um, and in the 60s, of course, Sayyid Qutb with milestones um, was a kind of a seminal event on again this. this it's a seminal event in, in militant Islam. Mil militant Islamist in, in taking in right. in spent time in the United States. Right, a lot of he these did. guys spent a lot of time he in spent the United States. Two years in 19, yeah. from 1948 to 1950. Yeah. And Sayyid Qutb attended. I like to tease my UNC graduates, University of North Colorado. Today it used to be called Greeley College. Yeah. For two. Yeah. Can you talk to that and so how actually complicated this is and not to, it's something well, about the U.S. and Israel relationship? Well, certainly. I mean, first of all. Um, the, 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 it's important getting back to Muhammad. So after Muhammad dies in 632 AD, you have to understand that you have various people from the moment he is, you know, on his deathbed, that's going to basically struggle to, 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 to shape his legacy. So when you, you take it from there to, to the 1920s, 30s, and now, is shaping the, the legacy. So again, Muhammad doesn't become Muhammad until he's 40 years old. He doesn't become, his prophetic period is, like, like Joe said, starts in 609 AD and is only 23 years. The man lived to be 63. Okay. You see. Okay. So, um, but, you know, fast forward to you know, the, the different pressures. I mean, you're talking about pressures. So what you're saying is I'm probably not going to be a messiah because <laughs> I'm 60. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's over for me. Okay. I, uh, Good to know. I, uh, uh, the pressures of, on society. So whether those pressures, for instance, are the Mongols from the East and the Crusaders from the West that put pressures on the Middle East, that creates uh, much more radical ideas in the region. You gotta always question, what are the pressures creating those radical ideas? In the case of Hassan al-Benna, well, the, the, the pressures are not old ones. They're new ones. You have the rise of, 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 of nationalism yeah. that does appeal to a segment of the Arab population. You know, Arab nationalism is, is born. And you have a situation where, um, 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 you have, uh, Egypt is basically a quasi protectorate of Great Britain, so you have you have you can't you can't divorce Hassan al-Banna from that. Uh, but Hassan al-Banna basically creates this, is, and then of course you have what is known as the the the, the Kamal Ataturk declaring the abolition of the institution of the Caliphate. 
yep. the abolition. So you have all these pressures, right, that creates Hassan al-Banna, the school teacher from Ismailia, to create the society of, of Muslim brothers, which is actually modeled, hold on to your socks, after the YMCA. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Why? Because the YMCA was quite active in World War One and World War II Egypt. And the YMCA back then, it's not like today. You, you know, you pay your five bucks, you go swimming, and you have a great time. You know, it, 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 back then there was a proselytizing piece to that. And that's another thing I think my fellow Americans don't really understand is that Islam, like Christianity, has a proselytizing component to it. So Hassan al-Banna mm-hmm. creates that. By 1932, he wants to cash in and become what I describe in my book, Milton Islamist Ideology in Middle East 101, as an Islamist political party in 1932. Well, you can't do that without the infection of Western European fascism, which infected Madison Square Gardens here in in the United States before the war and infected Egypt. So he had to compete against a group called the Young Egyptians with their green shirts and jackboots. He creates his own militia. So now he goes into that into that phase from 1932 to 1942. And in 1942, he enters the militant phase. And one could argue that militancy lasts until the death of Nasser in 1970. I mean, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying yeah. this. But what I'd like, and then of course, when, with Nasser's death in 1970 and the rise of Sadat, well, Sadat, in his first two and a half years in power, reinvents himself using Islamist politics. Because who's gunning after him? Nasserists. Well, he can't criticize Nasser. You know, he can't rely on the army. He can't rely on... They're all Nasserists. So what does he do? He grants amnesty to the thousands of jailed Muslim Brotherhood members mm-hmm. uh, who were jailed under Nasser. And, he, he, and Nasser executed Kutub. Nasser executed Kutub in August of 1966. Yeah. Right, in August of 1966. And, uh, now, and that's a whole other story right there. I mean, Kutub... I mean, I've read his books, and we, we, we mention him, but and his ideas are abhorrent. In my opinion, they're abhorrent. But you know, he went to the gallows willingly. And when you go to the gallows willingly for your ideas, that's great what? Marketing, don't Marketing. you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you see. So, um, so the, these figures, yeah. like a Nasser, yeah. um, again, in the American psyche, we care because there's foreign military sales, um, and don't forget the Cold War. And, and the Cold War. So right. it's yeah, us versus the Soviets. So th- through Desert Storm 1, we, we, you know, again, that was a nice, tidy 100 days victory sure. parade, debut of the F-117 and, and the, the boys in Baghdad and CNN as your 24-7, what's going on with the war thing. So it was, you know, it was a, a clean beginning and an end. It was a demonstration of how far American weaponry had come. That didn't really propel us into the um, true spiritual, in the American fear quotient. It wasn't until 9-11 when yes. now they can come to us, right? Now there's a existential threat. You're not separated by homeland. oceans anymore. I, I want to get us into the post-9-11 world. What is it about 9-11 and beyond this, you know, this war without end, first in Afghanistan, then Iraq, and then back to Afghanistan on the Obama watch. Um, what is it that all of this stuff that we've talked about to this point sets the stage for that? And then what is it that American foreign policy, both kinetic and behind the scenes, has fundamentally gotten wrong? 
Uh, Ward, I want to go back to um, uh, immediate post Desert Storm. Okay, there was a there was a there really was a, a window of opportunity after after uh, Desert Storm to really make some progress, like on the on the in uh, uh, Arab Israeli peace, um, uh, democratization, things like that. Um, because remember, remember a lot of the a lot of the Arab countries uh, went into the war as our as our coalition partners, thinking, okay, if we participate in this, you, the United States, are gonna are gonna bring Israel to the negotiating table. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hammer this thing out once and for all. We'll exactly. figure this out. And that's where the Madrid conference came came down, and uh, and the working groups. Some of these working groups are still in existence, like discussing uh, water, uh, trade, things like that. But they're you know really downplayed now, and. Um, I remember the uh, I was in I was in Bahrain uh, uh, shortly after the war, and it was amazing. It, it, the United the United States was was so highly respected then. I mean, I remember um, uh, Muslim women would tell their children, "Go over and thank that man," because huh. he, he they, they drove back uh, Saddam Hussein. But the, the thing and we is, weren't crusaders, right? No, I mean, we, we weren't did crusaders. It, we were liberators. We're out. I mean, we had Al Jabber and some other sort of skeleton footprint there of, of American presence. And exactly. we're doing the no-fly zone. Exactly. But it wasn't heavy-handed. No, it wasn't. And you know, we didn't go to Baghdad. We got our troops out of there. Except that the, there we did keep a significant military presence in, in Saudi Arabia. Correct. And this is yeah. one of the things that really uh, launched um, Osama bin Laden. He uh, went to um, Afghanistan to uh, uh, act be a jihadist, and actually he or he was quite an organizer also, and uh, um, fought extensively against the Soviets. That was a, that was a victory. He came back home in the late '80s, and he saw and or came back, you know, after after Desert Storm, and uh, there's there all these troops based, these gigantic air bases and military bases in, in Saudi Arabia. And, Peace, uh, What uh, would really upset Osama bin Laden is. Uh, and, and when he mentioned, he, when he approached the royal family about this, is that don't bring American troops. You know, he, he says, I have Arab Afghans from the Soviet-Afghan war that can take the fight into Iraq. You don't need Americans. Obviously, the, the Saudis, the Al-Sauds were, were very well aware that, A, bin Laden is, 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 overinflates. He's into hyperbole. He doesn't have... You know, twenty thousand Arab Afghan fighters with tanks. You know, and at the end of the day, and let's F-15s say hypothetically they missiles. are successful. These Arab Afghans, how easy will it be for the Al Sauds to ev- evict them after a success? You know, better yeah. to bring a, a sure thing, which is us, the United States. And at the end of the day, you know, they'll leave. You see, yeah, uh, and and uh, but that that really and they don't threaten the House of Saud. Yeah, exactly. And they don't threaten the House of Saud. So so that really really was a catharsis for Osama bin Laden. So he starts criticizing the Al Sauds during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And you can only do that for so much before they put you under house arrest. Under a ruse, he gets his passport back and he goes to Sudan first, where he spends about four or five years there creating what we would today call Al-Qaeda, you see. Um, and, and of course, bin Laden, his argument was, okay, was, first of all, it's kind of what the death by thousand cuts argument. It's not new. If I, or if we conduct, you know, terrorism against U.S. interests in the region and in the U.S. itself, then, then we can exhaust the U.S. to withdraw their position in the Middle East. And that would enable us to topple these 
despotic and corrupt and, un, and from his perspective, un-Islamic governments in the Middle East. You say he used the term uh, the near enemy and far enemy. Yes, the uh, the near enemy were the corrupt government, uh, corrupt Middle Eastern governments, uh, Mubarak of Egypt, uh, mm-hmm. the Saud, the House of Saud, and. Uh, the, you finally came to the realization, as, as Yusuf touched on, is that um, the way to get rid of the near enemy is 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 get rid of the the far enemy that supports them, drive Correct. them from the Middle East. So again, because in uh, uh, the American mind we have this big monolithic blob called the Middle East, and you guys do a great job at the outset of Middle East 101 of saying, okay, this is what is Muslim, this is Islam, this mm-hmm. is Arab, mm-hmm. you know, um, so. Bin Laden's concern is the Arab world, right? I mean, he's he's. I know he's he's a fundamentalist. You know, he's worried about Islam, but his criticism is is directed towards the Arab despots primarily. Yes, okay. that's correct. Yes, absolutely. And and of, and of course, it, it's. I mean, I mean, it, it, I know we have limited time in the show, but but Osama bin Laden, you have to understand, was also a, a product in university. At least during his university years, uh, of of a time when, remember the oil boom? Well, you know that translated to billions of dollars every month in revenues. That money. So when you say could, oil boom, you mean early seventies? The early seventies. Right. OPEC. Correct. Correct. Gas shortages. Correct. Well, that that shot the price of oil to the point where it it, it forced the Saudi government to decide what what do I do do with this money? Do I do I invest in the education of Saudis so they can come back and, re- and rebuild the country, or do I get it now? And you know what they picked, you know, uh, hospitals, schools, modernization, infrastructure, now, right now. Well, well, that means, you know, you have you know, all kinds of Western companies showing up in Saudi Arabia, and that provides the old age, age old tension ever since the discovery of oil between, okay, the the saturation of Western companies and Western influence pitted against the Saudi Wahhabi clerical establishment saying we're losing our values. I remember, for instance, a Friday mosque sermon of that period where the guy says, the cleric says, the Wahhabi cleric says, are the moorings of this society have come undone. We are losing our identity. And bin Laden in university was part of a counter-counterculture that agreed with that point of view. I mean, you think counterculture in American university, you think, you know, liberalism and, you know, freedom and all that. Well, at that time in the 70s, counterculture meant, you know, wait a minute, we're losing our identity, our Western, you know, you know. Because with Shell and Esso and Phillips came came Westerners, engineers right and families and their families and right. they had to have television and they had rock and roll music and right. they had to have and that's why schools. they were segregated in these compounds yes yes you see exactly. but, but the, yeah. they, the strains of Elvis could be heard outside the compound <laughs> exactly. and the Arab kids started tapping their toes right. and that was of grave concern to the yeah. clerics yeah to, to shift to the other side of the Gulf, the, the same thing's happening in, in Iran. Correct. It's losing its identity. Uh, it's, it's getting, uh, they called it West toxification. Right. We're, being, we're being poisoned by Western values. And uh, the guy that's uh, cheerleading this whole process is the Shah. So yeah. speaking of Western values, uh, so 10 years after 9-11, another thing happened in the Middle East called the Arab Spring. Yes. And I was in a, uh, a course uh, as a fellow in uh, in the Foreign Service Institute one one week, and uh, Daniel Benjamin was in there talking, and a very small class, like not bigger than this office. And uh, who's Daniel Benjamin? Daniel Benjamin is a was audience a, who might he not was he was at the time he was Assistant Secretary of State for Counterterrorism 
Um, yeah, he's, authored, he, he's authored several books, too. He's authored yeah. several books. Pretty smart guy in the Middle yeah. East. Now he's at Dartmouth. Um, he was asked a question. Uh, this was 2009, before the Arab Spring, about you know how much should the United States be supporting nascent democracy movements in the Middle East. This was just on the heels of the, uh, the second Bush administration's freedom agenda, Condoleezza Rice, of, of yeah. saying, hey, we need right. to push right. civil society in the Middle East and to get, be more democratic. This mm-hmm. is the long-term solution, etc." Benjamin's response to that was, the Middle East, the Arab countries in particular, the democracy movements are too small, too unorganized, and basically urban elites, and they do not have the uh, the support of the broader society. Mm-hmm. Two years later, the Arab Spring happens. Right. So I right. wonder if he... If his thesis was correct. His thesis was correct. What, yeah. do, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think uh, uh, Daniel Benjamin's thesis may have been correct in the short term, but not the long term, because uh, there's several factors. One, the, the Middle East that we, we grew up in doesn't exist anymore. The Middle East of the 1970s, where you relied on just two government-controlled channels. There's no internet, and you have uh, uh, you have to get a shortwave radio in order to get the news. That world doesn't exist now. You have 400 plus private Arabic channels, social media, the internet, the cacophony within Islam and within politics. Al Jazeera in the, in the mid 90s. It's coming in your living room. That cacophony is coming in your living room. Ideas are coming into your living room. Exchange of ideas is much easier now. Um, that's one. Two, you have a situation, too, that we, we have to get our minds around what, what we talk about democracy. Are you talking about liberal democracy or are you talking about representative democracy? If you're talking about representative democracy, sign me up for the Middle East. And you know why? Because I know that there's such a cacophony within Islam, all right? That the only way to remedy that in these respective countries, and forget, I haven't even touched non-Muslims yet, or tribes, or ethnicity yet, but just resolving the cacophony with Islam is some form of representative democracy. But that, the, the matrix you just posited is the fundamental problem, to my eye, with American foreign policy. Because when you say they hate our freedom, or what are we doing over there, we're going to instill freedom, that is liberal democracy. That is not representative democracy. Because right. Right. the idea of representative democracy right. could be counter to right. Western commerce. And, yeah. and you know, you may create a fundamentalist society. Yeah, and that's that another thing. Friendly. I mean, I mean at the end of the day, I mean, I'm I'm not a fan personally, just my own personal bias here. I'm not a fan of religious-based politics, all right? Because we typically get into I'm more Jewish than you, I'm more Muslim than you, I'm more Christian than you, or Protestant than you. And that typically ends poorly in society, but but that does that doesn't mean that doesn't that goes away just because it's not for me. That doesn't mean I respect my Americans first amendment right if they happen to be American and believes these things to indulge themselves in, in these beliefs. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, um, if you're going to have, whether it is a liberal and or representative democracy, most or a democracy, I mean, I'm not happy about it, but you're going to have to include Islam, various Islamist political parties, you know, and the Muslim Brotherhood is not just, is not the only one, mm-hmm. you know, in today's post-Arab Spring ecosystem, you have various Salafi political parties now that argue and say they're, they're not Salafi jihadis. Don't confuse them. They're Salafi politicos. And they argue, their political platform typically, when Mohammed Morsi, for instance, was president, the Muslim Brotherhood president in Egypt, uh, is the Muslim Brotherhood's not Muslim enough. Let's compete against them. So what, what country in the world uh, that would be considered a healthy uh, modern democracy has religious-based parties? Well, here's the deal. I mean, 
first of all, it's important to let the societies themselves decide how they want to structure their representative democracy. All right. So, for instance, I, I think King Hussein of Jordan was quite uh, a prophetic, actually, quite a sage in this regard. King Hussein, when he was alive, said, you can't stem the tide of Islamist politics. But then he set up a structure of checks and balances. All right, yes, you can participate. But if you begin to encroach upon the representation of other groups, whether it's secular, whether it's uh, ethnic, then I, as the king, reserve the right to nullify those elections and call for new elections. Yeah, and that's that's true. It, it'd probably be, always be a problem. You know, when I was in Djibouti, Abdi Samatar from University of Minnesota would come over and, and talk to us. He was a Somali by... Uh, he's written quite uh, quite a lot on ethnic, the perils of ethnic democracy, what he calls ethnic democracy in Africa, mostly, is, is his expertise, mm -hmm. which is if you have a political identity that is the same as your religious or ethnic identity, that is a recipe for disaster and it is never going to end well. Yeah, and also you got to understand many countries around the world are, are like that. Many countries around the world are based on ethnicity. You know, Thailand, land of the Thais, Turkey, land of the Turks, Poland, land of the Poles, France, land of the Franks, or based on religion. You know, Israel, land for Jews, Pakistan, land for Muslims. India today just passed uh, this week, this month passed legislation Hinduizing uh, basically nat uh, naturalization and, and immigration, which is not necessarily a good thing. It's not a good thing. <laughs> no, of course not, because then that begs the question. I, you know, I mean, what do you do with these other my citizens? So, so in the in the end game here, I want to do a speed round, uh -huh. um, and I want to hit the milestones of nine eleven uh, and incursion into Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, the pullout of Iraq on Obama's watch, the creation of ISIS, and then the most recent activities, Syria, ISIS phase two, et cetera. So let's start with, okay, 9-11 happens. On that day, you may remember, we didn't know who'd attacked us. You know, and finally we go, okay, it was Al-Qaeda, so we're gonna do something. Remember Bush at, at the site with the bullhorn? Yeah. The, the people are gonna hear us very soon. Right. Um, so here come CIA caseworkers and Green Beret with, Naval Aviation Air Cover. And that changes my career from Medical Service Corps to Middle East Affairs. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> I, there's I was the high school teacher. Yeah. Uh, I was teaching here when that happened. Um, and my last tour on active duty. Uh, but in terms of how we executed, because to my eye, we conflated Taliban with Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get into the forever war. Yeah. But in your mind, what did we do yeah. right in terms of understanding the region both in a secular and, and non-secular way, um, the the vagaries of Islam and the the political systems, the various oh, are, you know the right. It's a big question, but I want to kind of sort of take it to thirty thousand feet. So, Joe, what what did we do right at you know, when we invaded Afghanistan on the seventh of October? And then what did we do wrong in, in, in perpetuity following that? So just let's start with that sure. thing. Post 9-11, what, what, what did we do right and wrong? Well, we had to, uh, we definitely had to, uh, defeat both the Taliban of Afghanistan and the, uh, and, um, try and dismantle Al Qaeda the best we could. And that succeeded. That, that succeeded to a large extent, except we didn't, we didn't really figure out how to, um, we're still working at it, a viable central, uh, sovereign yeah. Afghan government. It's the Alexander the Great problem. Sure. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. There is a, a school of thought regarding Afghanistan where really the, the president of Afghanistan is simply just the mayor of Kabul. 
Yes. Because and, and and it's not his fault. It's the geography. You have these micro micro ecosystems of valleys and hills yeah. that has their own micro. Well, even beyond the geography, it's the culture. Yeah. Right. Well, microcultures develop. Yeah. That. Well, I mean, this is a this is a you know the, these are agrarian yeah. shepherds in in Paktika province. Yeah. I was there in 2010, and we're you know walking around with members of the 101st Airborne, um, yeah. and we're going out to literally kulats. Sure. And saying, hey, uh, election coming up, your polling place is here. And these guys would look at you like, what is Kabul and who is Karzai? And why would I care? Right? I, uh, but you're, to get to your question, what we get right, what, what, we, what we got, first of all, in my view, tactically, what we got right regarding Operation Enduring Freedom is, gentlemen, we didn't fight bin Laden's war. We actually fought like people there fight. Yeah. Which is basically, I mean, I know we, we use the note, the kind of uh, mis- simplified misnomer, you know, rent an Afghan, you know. Uh, but that's really how you fought. You, you, Horseback. You, you empowered, lords. exactly. Yeah. You didn't come top heavy. You yeah. didn't give bin Laden the war he wanted. Well, we didn't have the infrastructure yeah. that was part of it. Yeah. Right. I and mean, that, it took us 18 years to build Da Nang yeah. across the country. It, it, this is where we got it right, uh, where we, where, in my view, got it wrong. And is is redirecting efforts really in, almost in, within the year towards Iraq and Saddam Hussein? Yes. Resources yeah. and effort and deployments yeah, right. towards Saddam Hussein is where we we're really really we weren't we weren't done with Afghanistan. Yeah. No, I remember I was touring support yeah. of my second novel at that time, doing yeah. a lot of talk radio, and they kept talking about Iraq. Mike, why do you do you, I mean, you mean I Afghanistan, mean, right? I mean Iraq. Sure. When I left it in '98, doing the no-fly zone, was at parade rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We knew where every MiG-29 was. Sure. We knew where every member of the Republican Guard is. What is this about an imminent threat? I do not get it. Yeah. Right? Remember before 9/11? Think back to the late summer of 2001. Um, what were the what were the big issues in the United States? Was, well, uh, on Rumsfeld's watch, it was downsizing the army, right, and getting smart yes, about defense yes. procurement, missile defense. Do you remember? So, do you remember yeah. uh, Secretary of State Powell's uh, smart sanctions that we just we uh, begin to um, have a sanctions regime regime where we only uh, where we only prevent items that can be used uh, lethally into Iraq, and uh, to basically revive the the, the Iraqi population. And um, so basically, Saddam Hussein was contained. He was oh, no, contained. absolutely contained. Well, I mean, contained. I mean, I mean, was was Saddam Hussein a problem? Yes, yes. he was. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do re- recollect that, for instance, he was getting bolder. He was getting more aggressive. He was actually, you know, targeting our no fl- northern and southern no fly zones in Operation Southern Watch and Northern Watch. It was a lot of fun when he did that, by the way. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah. But, we, we, but we would at love some it when they light us up with, a, with an some, essay yeah, two but, or essay six. You and six. I know at some point, eventually, someone's going to get shot down, or eventually. Uh, and then the question becomes: I have my own opinions about whether that would have happened. Yeah, I mean, our harm shooters are pretty yeah, good. But, but you know, another issue too is is when you look at his WMD, for instance. All right, so we know he used WMD against the Kurds. We know he used WMD against in the Iran-Iraq war. All right. So everybody, you, you talk to people in the lead-up to the invasion, and you talk to governments in the lead-up to the invasion, everyone seems to agree he's got WMD. Or at least an active program. An active program, yeah. right. And, and unfortunately, from 1998, when he kicked out the UN inspector, Saddam did. Mm-hmm. All right. And he, here he is saying, I, I've got it. I'm, he's, he's touting it. 
He's not getting clear. He's playing games with the UN inspector. He kicks them out. All right. So from 1998 until 2003, the invasion, it's a black hole. Nobody knows. Does he have it? Does he not have it? And it it takes an invasion, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. So we can blame Bush. We get, can blame forty three. But to, to get to let's get be honest. Answer. Saddam yeah. was playing death by cop here, yeah. Yeah. right? With his being very provocative in yeah. ways he knew yeah. ultimately it could it re, you know wind up being an invasion. It was a great bluff. A great bluff. It was. I mean, oh, at the end of the day, he's not going to admit he that he doesn't have it. Until we, we called not him. Not in this day. Until he got hung. Yeah, it was great yeah. until that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, we've said that the, the, the big mistake yeah. was invading Iraq in that, in that yeah. phase. Yeah, right? without, without ball, completing ball, Afghanistan. Right? Yeah. Um, okay, so so here comes Obama, which you could say was a, a sort of national reaction to the existence of the neocons and, and the 43 administration. Um, and so Obama, during the campaign, says, Iraq, bad war, Afghanistan, good war. So um, he proceeds over the course of two terms to pull out of Iraq summarily, um, obviously in hindsight maybe a little too quick, um, and double down on Afghanistan. So let's talk about the pullout of Iraq and what happened. And, of course, I'm talking about ISIS. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, going back to the, the Iraqi invasion, um, uh, militarily, it was it was an overwhelming success. We basically we, we conquered a, a country with two divisions: the um, uh, third division and then, then the um, Marine uh, MEF. So it was really a very well very well carried out. But we weren't prepared for the aftermath. I know that we've we've we had a whole decade to discuss that, and some of the mis- some of the decisions that were made after the invasion are horrendous. Right. Uh, the fact that we didn't if we had if we had gone in there and had several billion dollars in our pocket. To help out local leaders in the, in, the, in, the, in the local communities to to get back on their feet, and some of the decisions made by uh, Ambassador Bremer were outrageous. I mean, yeah. uh, well, debuffification, disbanding the, the Iraqi, Iraqi army, army yeah. okay. terrible. Yeah, right, terrible. right. I mean, I mean, from yeah, exactly. From my perspective, I think uh, a not dealing realistically, despite people saying. I mean, there were people warning. I mean, they they, they can't say we weren't advised properly. All right. Planning for phase four, stabilization. Yeah. All right. That was that was not done. I mean, and I think uh, General Shinseki was prophetic about it when he talked about it when he went before Congress. You know, when he essentially he said we can take Iraq with 170,000 combat troops. So you go in there and you never have enough people for stabilization for OIF, during OIF. And you make it worse by order number one, which is debathification. You hand that program to uh, the late Ahmed Shalabi. Well, you might as well call it desunification. You know, not debathification, and, and in, you deprive yourselves of, of technocrats and engineers and professionals, people who've not been in Saddam's torture rooms, but who make the country run, you know, professionals. Yeah. And then you compound that with order number two, El Palmer's order number two, disbanding the Iraqi army. What does that mean? Well, that means 400,000 military trained individuals on the streets with their weapons and ammo. Mostly Sunnis. And now you have oh, and Sunnis and Shia. Sunni and Shia. And, and, and because 60% of Iraq is Shia, actually. Yeah. So, and but only a, 10%, this is what was yeah. fascinating at the outset of Middle East 101, only 10% of the Muslim world is Shia. Yeah, I would, 90% yeah, I would is say Sunni. Yeah, That's, yeah. That stat just blew me away. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, again, you know. if you look at it through the Iraq lens, those proportions yeah. um, seem to be 
uh, you know, different than yeah, and even though the, Shiism is, 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 is only about 15% of, of 1.6 billion Muslims, they occupy areas of strategic interest in the United States in the 20th and 21st century. Iran, Iraq, you know, these are he- heavy Shia yeah, concentrations. Yeah. Uh, so we give that order number two, and then we create the ecosystem. That's the whole issue. The ecosystem that leads to the rise of organizations like ISIS. Through Al Qaeda in Iraq and ISIS. As a matter of fact, I would I would say you can't understand ISIS leaders today, okay, without Operation Iraqi Freedom. It's their baptism of fire. Just like you can't understand Zawahri and his generation without the Soviet Afghan. So ISIS members start their militant life as members of AQI. AQI. Is that that's fair correct. to say. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So uh, uh, you, as a matter of fact, you can't understand ISIS. Without AQI, and importantly, without a single individual, Zarqawi, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. As a matter of fact, I would argue with you gentlemen that the newest form of militant Islamist or Salafi jihadi ideology is Zarqawiism, to distinguish it from bin Ladenism. And the best way to understand that is, let's say hypothetically, gentlemen, we're all Salafi jihadis, right? And we're debating these issues. We would say bin Ladenism is kind of the bourgeois thinking man jihadi all right and your zarqawiism is your proletariat every man savage it's the most savage the the jordanian too he he was a he was jordanian he was he was was a a street criminal he was yeah Yeah. Yeah. he was and actually he was brought to regrettably prominence over this issue of trying to link saddam hussein to bin laden yeah and and because zarqawi happened to be and i keep on he was injured because he was in Tora Bora, and we injured him when he dropped bombs on Tora Bora. And here he is recovering in northern Iraq, and a group called Ansar al-Islam, or AI in the business we call him, Ansar al-Islam, is providing him haven in the autonomous Kurdish region. Near Halabja. Yeah. So, so you have a situation here where if Saddam Hussein had access, what do you think that he would do to Ansar al-Islam? Kill them all. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so there is no linkage. So <laughs> there again, is no linkage. Again, in, in our yeah. 24-7 pop culture mind, right. circa, you know, Obama administration, I'm, I'm your average American, we get Bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Movies are made. Sure. It has this nice tidy ending. It has SEAL Team 6. It's s- super watchable and it just makes sense to me. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, war over. Meanwhile, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of... All of the, the the parts that are in play as a function of the killing of Osama bin Laden, right? And so this is how mm-hmm. ISIS happens, and we're asleep at the switch in terms of our approach to foreign policy. Is that a, a fair statement? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, ISIS, like I said, eventually by 2015, ISIS and al-Qaeda, they're strategic competitors by 2015. They have different strategic visions. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know that. I'm just saying your yeah. average American voter does not know that. Mm-hmm. I just feel like the country just once the uh, the the, the um, what was the name of the compound? Once the Abbottabad raid happened, right. I just feel like America, not foreign policy expert, not nat security expert, not sure. active duty military deploying to sure. you know to Afghanistan. Sure. But your average person's like, okay, over. Yeah. Right? We got yeah. him. We got yeah. the bad guy. Well, yeah. There's one yeah. other yeah, factor. Yeah, but you, but you said something very, very important and that is I did? Uh, yeah, which wow. is which is it is <laughs> I mean this on off switch, you know, where where okay, we get into a conflict and and you kill the individual or you you have the surrender, whatever it is, and it's off. Yes. Well well those in the national security establishment 
it's it's never over. But it's, this is the nature of yeah. that part of the world. This is what you're saying. Correct. From Roman times that Correct. we don't get. We fundamentally Correct. don't get. And another thing, too, I would tell my, 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 my fellow American is, is because I get this question a lot. When does it end? You know, when does it end? Like war as an on-off switch. When yeah. does it end? Okay. Right. And I say, listen, the Middle East is the crossroads of three continents. If So great empires, whether you, it's the Hittites, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, you know, whether you want to maintain super, superpower status, you have to maintain a presence in the Middle East. The crossroads of three continents. I haven't even touched oil yet or tribalism or eth- ethnicity or religion. Well, there is one other factor that was important during that time frame that Ward describes is that we have, we have, we're trying to hold Iraq together, help them, uh, transition to self-government in some sort of representative democracy fashion. Right. And that means, and, and that, therein that lies means, the problem. And that, that means they get a democracy. vote. And in the, you know, the, we couldn't get a SOFA agreement. Correct. Maliki couldn't give it, we couldn't get a SOFA agreement. So there was an issue. And the reason Maliki couldn't get a SOFA agreement is you can't ask him to take that to the, Parliament, right? So it became we became a victim of our own success. Yeah. Well, this regard. goes back to Afghanistan. So that what what struck yeah. me when I embedded with uh, with the army there in 2010, when we're out in the wilds of Mest and um, you, you know Yosef Kel and Yahya Kel, um, there is no foundation for democracy. Again, you say to him, "Hey, you've got this election happening." Um, and so democracy demands some level of communication and education and, and a, a sense that freedom matters. And empathy, not uh, and, sympathy, and, but empathy. Yeah, yeah. And, right. And, and so this is the 14th century there, literally. I mean, you'd hand him a soccer ball, he'd be like, what is this? You know, they care about aqueducts and irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, you know, but only to the point when they need central government assistance for their aqueduct or their farms or, or land reclamation. So this one shepherd that I was talking about before, he kind of looked like George Harrison, all okay. things must pass era yeah. George Harrison, long hair, beard, very wise and very calm. Yeah. And the first thing they gave him was a cellophane-wrapped prayer rug, which he very much appreciated. And so obviously working through an interpreter, had an extended conversation with him in this revetted field. And there, you know, he had his sheep there and his kids were running around and he had a culotte off in the distance. He said, you know what? In the wintertime, I wander over to Pakistan. And, and then I come here about this time of year and stay through the summer. So he didn't recognize this thing that we call a border. Right. Right. There was no, it was just this free flow Correct. effect between the countries against what he needed to do to survive. Correct. You know, and so already you're like, no, 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 you're Afghan and, and your guy is Karzai. No, he, he, no he's Pashtun, he'll you, tell you. Right. right. So, right. so. You know, and we were walking in there thinking, "Hey, once they have a Walmart here, it's going to be awesome, <laughs> oh, right?" That's what our we kind of—I mean, that's a fast yeah. way to describe it. But that's sort of our sense sure. of how we're going to execute foreign policy. Uh, you know, like you said, just because Sir Mortimer Durand drew his line in the partition of India, it doesn't mean that the borders are recognized. Yeah. So, so let's hit the last sort of the the. Or you have some Joe? Well, you I just want to add about um, you know we said uh, um, on the. On the Build up to the uh, invasion of Iraq is that we um, we took our eye off of off the ball on Afghanistan and, and yeah. Uh, I would like to say that um, after the after the failure of the, 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 to get the SOFA agreement, the uh, Obama administration took its eye off of uh, Iraq in favor of Afghanistan and uh, because that Obama, was the campaign promise exactly. Right? That's and, again the folly and, of campaign. You, you and, know, now we're going to build a wall and, and now we're going to do some other things exactly just because exactly. the candidate said so on the on the campaign trail. So, and what ha- and what happened? Nuri al-Maliki evolved into a Shia dictator. Correct. 
And that's that very was, important. That was the opening to very one, important. Of the, one of the big openings for ISIS. Prices. And as long as you continue to play that kind of sectarian-based politics uh, and you marginalize the Sunnis in Iraq, the insurgency has oxygen. Yes. It goes on and on. Well, it goes back to had yeah. we had a phase four plan on the initial run-up to Baghdad, mm-hmm. we could have exactly. stymied this. This is the lesson we never can learn, whether it's you know, Khomeini following uh, the Shah, whatever. We just always get that wrong because, again, you could be kind of, um, you know, Machiavellian about our motives and say, well, it is about the oil. And once that's, you know, once we've, you know, sort of locked that down, then the the freedom of the individual in the cities and the villages was not really our concern. They're going to have to figure it out. And don't forget also uh, generation. When you talk about the protests happening in Iran today, you, you're realizing you, uh, Young that the majority of the population of Iran demographically don't remember the Shah. So, yeah. you know, last yeah. question, last topic. What's going to happen in the next five years? Wow. And what should we do? I Where are we going to make a mistake? Where What, what are we yeah, already no, doing wrong? Yeah, yeah. Whether it's the Syrian might, pullout, whether it's, sure. you it know, might, it might be easier to ask necking uh, down what, in Afghanistan. Yeah. What are we the most worried about? Okay, yeah, that's years. what I meant to ask. Okay. Yes, go ahead, Joe. Um, the, the, the total breakdown in any progress towards a uh, Israeli-Palestinian settlement, there's no, there's absolutely, that's dead. There's no, there's no progress at all. I'm still waiting. And that's a function of what? Yeah. I'm waiting for the plan. <laughs> I mean, is that I mean, a function I, of moving the embassy to Jerusalem? Have that, has that made it worse? What, what? Why do you say that? It's one of those things that it's, it's um, you know, the United States uh, held back at moving its embassy to uh, Jerusalem because it always said, um, we'll decide where to put our um, embassy when, when the final peace settlement is, is arrived at, when finally all the UN resolutions are resolved and, and we, have a two, we have two states. Well, that's where our embassy, where the capital of Israel is. But if you go to Israel, um, there's no way that West Jerusalem is going to be part of a Palestinian state. I mean, um, that, that's not going back. That, that's, that's permanent Israel. When I first went to Israel back in the year 2000, I got, I got to know a, um, a great man. He was uh, still, a, still a, a good friend of mine. He's over 90 years old now. His name is Ari Cheval, and he used to work for the um, uh, diplomatic service and the later for the Department of Ed- for Education, Department of Education in, um, in Israel. And I got, to, I got to know him during that trip, and um, this was when Camp David II was going on. And we were like literally hanging on every word. Over we were over there, and um, we're so close. It was so exciting. I mean, there'd, there'd be demonstrations going down the street. There were pro Ehud Barak, and there'd be demonstrations coming down the street that were anti Ehud Barak. But um, Ari used to always say, "You know, we finally reached a uh, a settlement to the Israeli-Palestinian issue when neither side likes it. That both sides <laughs> had to give something up." Yeah, yeah, and one of those things might be for the Israelis. Some of those things might be some of those settlements will have to go. Yeah, yeah. From my perspective, what 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 worries me five years down the line is a situation where now uh, you can't uh, understand the Middle East today in the 21st century in 2020 as we're approaching 2020 without understanding the different conflicts nested within the Middle East. So, for instance, the conflict in Iraq and Syria, nested in that is the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is a regional conflict. Nested in that is a geostrategic conflict between Russia and the United States. So they all... I, I can't just be a Middle East expert anymore. I have to bone up on my biographies of Vladimir Putin and, and, and KGB tactics. 
because he's, they, they've interposed themselves into the region, which also means five years down the line, uh, will the will different countries in the region have, uh, one could argue it's happening now, different options to go to in the furtherance of their own agendas and policies. What I mean by that is they're, they're becoming less and less reliant of the on the United States and what the United States says, you see, is my concern. Uh, and then, of course, with that, five years down the line, you're talking again about it's multidisciplinary, things like the environment. Just one case in point. When South Sudan was created, for instance, that added, I think, I believe, I'd have to look at my numbers, the 11th Nile state that shares the Nile. And depending on how the negotiations between Egypt and Ethiopia goes over the Ethiopian Great Renaissance Dam, depending on climate change, you can see conflict developing yeah. between these Nile states in the future years. Well, Yusuf and Joe, this has been the longest podcast we've ever had, and, and I <laughs> think we you. need to Thank do a, a part two as well. <laughs> That's the Middle East <laughs> for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we could go on and on. Great. It's just been a fantastic yeah. conversation. The book is Middle East 101. A new release from the Naval Institute Press would make a great stocking stuffer. Um, for anybody who's going to be deploying to the region, I would suggest it's a must-have in your library, and for anybody... Um, it, at the undergraduate level, whether you're a poli-sci major or not, if you're thinking of, uh, of doing any business with the Middle East, this is a mandatory read. It's imminently readable. It's organized in a fantastic way. I, you can dig into it at any, any one of the 101 questions, and it's just you can't put it down. Uh, also, as a forward by our good friend, General Stanley McChrystal. And so uh, congratulations, guys, on a triumph. Thanks, Warrior. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. And thanks for much. coming by the Proceedings thank, Podcast. Thank you for having us. Our, our pleasure. We will do yep. this again. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right. That'll do it for this episode. We'll see you again next week. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.